Hi, and welcome to a special Sydney Theatre Company podcast. In December 2015, our Artistic Director Andrew Upton and our Executive Director Patrick McIntyre sat down with an audience of about 300 of our season ticket holders at our home base, The Wharf, in Walsh Bay. They talked about the plays Sydney Theatre Company has coming up and Andrew gave some fascinating insight into how he came to select each one of these particular works. STC is presenting 16 plays across four theatres this year and a few of our plays are going on tour as well, so there's plenty of ground to cover and they also answered some questions from the audience. We hope you enjoy listening in. To find out more about special events like this one and for great behind-the-scenes content, sign up to our monthly newsletter at sydneytheatre.com.au forward slash enews. And to share your thoughts, tag Sydney Theatre Co on all forms of social media or head to our website for more ways to get in touch. We love to hear from you. Now, over to Patrick and Andrew. Good afternoon. Wow. What a terrific turn-up. Thanks for coming out on a Saturday morning. My name's Patrick McIntyre. I'm the Executive Director of STC. And I'm Andrew Upton, the Artistic Director. Uh, so the first thing, Andrew, it's yes. your final season for the company. It is. Uh, number eight? Uh, yeah, or, or nine. Eight. Yes, eight. It's eight season. So yeah. that's great. And it's, and it's also been, uh, uh, luckily, or through great planning, um, tremendously successful season. Um, and I think in the, in the last few years there have been a lot of programs we've done that have had, uh, that have been really driven by very well-known uh, yeah. performers like Kate and Richard and Hugo and those sorts of people. Um, and next year, um, it's going to be great to see Rose Byrne back on stage after a very long period of time. But next year's not such a kind of a star-driven program, and yet its, um, it's appeal so far has been as strong as any year in the last um, five or so. What do you put that down to? Well, I think we've kind of found a, uh, a voice inside the company um, around um, the producing of shows and the directing of shows. So there's a kind of, um, I suppose, a style that... that, that uh, we pr that I definitely program into, which uh, goes straight to really strong text-based work, which gives good good actors the opportunity to be the, be their best. And we've got obviously some great uh, actors, um, you know, who live and work in Sydney. And I think we've um, kind of built up there, up relationships with them, uh, and that's all. There's a sort of I suppose there's a, a coming together of of good directing great actors and great texts that, mm. that's, that's got a kind of momentum to it. The, the <coughs> three of the top players next year so far, um, so so far the, the season has been on sale to season ticket holders who get to buy shows first and then after that we release it to um, single ticket buyers, um, which happened in the last couple of weeks. And um, with both season ticket holders and single ticket buyers, the most popular shows have been Arcadia, Disgraced and Speed the Plough. Um, Disgraced is an interesting one. A couple of years ago we did a new Australian play called Kryptonite, yep. um, which was quite politically engaged and it was a very yeah. contemporary Australian political story. Um, and Disgraced similarly is a very, very contemporary and politically engaged story. I think one of the great strengths of theatre is its, it, well, obviously in its form is its immediacy. Uh, but that immediacy, you know, live theatre, uh, is, is great when it's keyed into things that we feel like we're living through now or... or um, uh, that stories are told that are about about the tensions that that we we're all living in, 
uh, and disgrace. Of course, it's right on this sort of um, the sort of racism, I suppose, and the questions around um, religion and race and uh, identity inside multicultural nations. And um, it's beautifully executed. It's a wonderful bit of writing. But yeah, I mean, it's great that a new play, which has never been seen in Australia, um, can can attract uh, that much attention. Yeah, it's also interesting because a lot of people say that when times are tough and when the mood, the pub, sorry, my back is you guys over here, when the public mood is gloomy, uh, generally the wisdom is that you perform, you know, you put on great escapist things that are easy and will make people smile. And yet, disgraced is kind of like bang on one of the most kind of um, hot points. Hot points, yeah, yeah. A, a real, a real pressure point in society. So it's interesting that um, that that the opportunity to come and think through those issues in the company of an audience through theatre is, is there's yeah. definitely a hunger for that kind of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Um, Arcadia, of course, <clears throat> well, that's just the best play ever written, really. It is one of the great plays of the 20th century. Uh, over the time I've been here, we've done... This will be our third stop art. Uh, I think probably he's the most visited writer that we've done, obviously, apart from maybe Shakespeare. Um, and... He's a great playwright. Beautiful. He writes these beautiful. There's there's great intelligence and wit, uh, and a beautiful lightness of touch in all of his work. And then when you start to get the heart beating inside it, which um, Arcadia is full of heart, uh, you get you end up with these great great works. And it's a you know it's a lovely conceit. It's it's um, crosses through time. It, it's it's um, you know in the 90s I suppose, and then also way back in the in a Georgian. Uh, time that's being investigated and sort of challenged historically, and the audience are, are allowed to witness both, and the kind of clashes and the and the misunderstandings and the and the connecting fabric between sort of human lives. It's a beautiful, beautiful play. Yeah, Stoppard just has this ability to deal with stuff that on paper, like sometimes when you tell people what Arcadia is about, it's like there's researchers and one's researching a poet and it's also about <laughs> the invention of chaos theory and a person who spends their time doing algorithms and they kind of zone out. But there's something about Tom Stoppard that manages to deal with really complex and kind of, you know, rarefied intellectual issues, mm. but, but with such humour and, 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 and heart. heart. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. It's a wonderful play. Incredible play, right. Um, and the other, the other one, Speed the Plough, David Mamet. So, uh, uh, it's, um, I hate to spring this on you in front of an audience, but um, whenever we receive any complaints about your artistic directorship, oh, yes. it's generally about the bad language. That's uh, right. Why, why does Mr Upton <laughs> always make everything so crude? Um, so you are going to come back and direct David Mamet's Speed the Plough. Yes, which I am. Has, which is a fairly salty affair. It's, it's a it? salty affair uh, and a little, a little coarse in its plotting. But it's a fa it's a great uh, it's a great sort of wrestle. Well, it's on one level a wrestle for a man's soul and his integrity, uh, but on a, on a kind of more naturalistic level, it's a battle between two men for dominion, uh, and um, and the kind of wily escape or um, uh, connivances of a female. I mean, it's great classic mammoth, and it's set inside uh, the land of the shysters, which is Hollywood. And um, skewers Hollywood beautifully and, and very funny on that level, but actually also the drama and the comedy between the three characters is uh, very vibrant and dynamic and pacey and a little salty. Yes. A little salty. But not too salty. Not as salty as perhaps a flea in her ear might become, but we'll see. Yes, well, I was going to ask you about a flea in her ear. 
actually, which is, um, again, it's a play that, that often pops up in theatre companies' repertoires because it, it now seems... It's from, it was written in the early 20th century, yep, 1908 19, or something. Yep. Um, so a lot of people now view it as a kind of a quaint farce with people running in and out of bedroom doors in dressing gowns and things, and it's, and it's kind of... It's, it's, um, I mean, it's a very technically pre precise French farce. It is, it is, it, there like is a, a genre cube. of French farce, and, and it is it. Yeah. Um, so what are you doing? Are you going to make that 20th century? Are you going to make it...? Well, I did... Uh, in, in kind of scratching back into it, I can sense... I should just say, Andrew's writing a new adaptation of that work for yes. the season. Uh, and it's currently called A Flea in a Rear, although we may change that title. I mean, the sort of polite title would be A Bee in Her Bonnet. Uh, the more David Mamet title would be a bug in her ass. Um, I don't know which way to go, but I don't think it's a bee in a bonnet. <laughs> Apologies in advance. Um, yeah, it's like a Rubik's Cube. I'm re literally working on it. I was literally working on it at five o'clock this morning because we've got a workshop uh, in a week's time. Uh, and it is like a Rubik's Cube. It's the most incredibly sort of delicate... Uh, series of you know, entrances and exits and crossing and misunderstandings. But inside it is actually quite dangerous. It is, it is about sexual tension and anxiety. And um, I think if you don't explore that anxiety in a way that, that we can believe... Because I think in 1906 that would have been quite confronting. Mm. Uh, and, and, and that confrontation is necessary to get the hysteria, which is necessary to get the comedy. So I think it's got to be fairly salty. Um, and a, a fairly salty kind of environment uh, in order to get to the, 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 the danger that you need to get to the comedy. Mm. So uh, there will be the odd swear word and there's definitely some terribly compromising situations, but hopefully they will be funny because it is a very funny, uh, funny situation. It's a series of uh, misalliances and treacheries. And are you leaving it in the Belle Epoque? We were talking... Simon Phillips and Gabriella Tylasova are, are the kind of key team and um, they did uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead for us a couple of years ago. And they're... I mean, Simon's a beautiful director and Gabriella's a great designer. And they both felt that that Belle Epoque gives you mm. kind of fantastic visuals and a really sort of dirty, grimy quality. I mean, it's that sort of classic Toulouse-Lautrec uh, world with the can-cans and there's something kind of irky in that. So I think we've got enough grime in that setting to not worry about it being set in the past and therefore being kind of sterile. Mm. Yeah. So it'll be set back in time. But linguistically, like all my work, it will still have uh, deliberate anachronisms and enough uh, uh, modernity to keep the audience kind of guessing. So between that and Speed the Plough and the Wolf Review next year, we're there dishing up a lot complaints. of sex and bad language <laughs> just in time for Christmas. <laughs> Bring your kids. Um, <laughs> so that's terrific. So then, then getting back, over the last couple of years, um, we've seen a lot of writers like Chekhov and Stoppard and Shaw as yeah. well. And next year you're getting into Noel Coward, um, Miller yeah. and Mamet. So is there a list of writers that you just think, damn, I still haven't done oh, any of them? Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I love Arthur Miller. Uh, and those, those plays... Particularly those early plays, All My Sons, Death of a Salesman, Crucible, are so, um, so deep and rich and open up such a great doorway into, you know, one of the most significant cultural uh, shifts in storytelling is naturalism, uh, you know, which obviously starts with, actually starts in novels, but, you know, makes its way into the theatre mostly through Chekhov. 
uh, but then is kind of condensed and, and colonised by cinema in, in the 20th century. But M Miller, I think, took it to a whole another level where he kind of capitalised on the power of cinema and the power of reality, but still maintained the poetry necessary to, to reach deep into, into a story rather than, you know, just sort of sit on the surface of the story. Uh, and those early plays of his, uh, uh, you know, I'd happily programmed all of them again and again. I think they're, they're magnificent works of, of literature and of drama. Uh, and the kind of poetry in All My Sons is particularly, I think, really pertinent, actually, in this, in this time, because there is a, there, you know, there is a, there's a, an anxiety inside our, our good fortune. And, and that anxiety inside our good fortune is that it is, you know, if you draw a line, not a long line to draw to it being based on others' bad fortune. And All My Sons really, really sits on top of that. There's this very successful business, very successful family. And if you just draw a very small line, you can see that it's based on some terrible, terrible decisions and, and compromises and moral um, decay, really. Uh, and that is a great and explosive dynamic. And then, you know, told beautifully and elegantly by Arthur Miller, and then in the hands of Kip, uh, one of our resident directors, uh, I think we'll once again get that sort of sense that it's set back where it belongs, just after the Second World War, but that it talks to today in its, uh, in its aesthetic and in its, in its purpose. So you went for All My Sons out of all the Miller plays because of its timeliness? Um, I think I mean, so. I mean, that to me... You could have Crucible or something that... Yeah, the, the Crucible has a timeliness. Play. They're great plays. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, all my sons for me. There was something about the the war crime. It was uh, there was I think it was we were programming, weren't we? Round about the time there was all that sort of kerfuffle over money being accepted from for the Biennale, and you know those mm. questions about where money comes from, and that really seems to sit inside the all my sons kind of conversation. Mm. And I think that's what pushed me right mm. into that. It's an incredible play. It's kind of like. Um, it's kind of like John Steinbeck. It's got that really, yeah, yeah. really big kind of um, mid-20th-century American mm. thematic heft. Yeah. Um, and then Coward, because, uh, I mean, not Coward. The opposite. Four and a half thousand plays <laughs> or something. Um, yeah, well, once again, I started at the beginning with Noel Coward. I, to be honest, he's not a writer I knew that well. Um, I mean, I knew Blythe Spirit and... Uh, um, yeah, I've forgotten its name. I knew it so well. What's that one? Anyway, I knew that one about the <laughs> private lives. Yeah. But I didn't really know Hay Fever. And, uh, and I was interested to know what would happen if, um, if, once again, we found out how to get that out of the 1920s so that it didn't just sit there as a museum piece. But you, also, you can't kill the play. I mean, it belongs where it belongs. It belongs in Britain. And it belongs in a world that's kind of more monarchic and hierarchical than our current world. But there are things inside it that are so dynamic and exciting, kind of reminded me of a Wes Anderson um, film where the, they're so sort of rarefied, these characters, that they, they kind of point to a lost time and a kind of nostalgia, but they also point to a sort of freedom. They're beautiful characters. And once again, it's, so, it's the elegance of the writing, I think, is my main attraction to, to Coward. And this is a first... I think it was his first play. Right. I think he wrote it in three days. And it is beautiful. It's just delicate and elegant and finessed and funny. It's interesting just getting on to 
directorial choices about how to present plays because um, uh, I imagine many of you would have seen our production of The Present earlier this year, which was um, an early Chekhov play that Andrew adapted and it was both shifted from the late 19th century to the 1990s and even though it was still set in Russia and everyone had Russian names, it was delivered in broad Australian accents and <laughs> in an Australian vernacular. Um, whereas <laughs> you've just said that a play like Hay Fever kind of needs to be in the 1920s yeah. and the actors need to speak in, in British accents to make it work. I don't know if they need to speak in British accents, but you need to know that they're from a slightly rarefied right. space. But you definitely need just a little bit of history between you and the play. Mm. Um, a kind of shared history. And I think we all have a sense, whether it be true or false, that the 1920s were a particular thing... And I think you need to know that that particular thing is happening when these people get together. That sort of, I suppose, privilege, uh, sort of risque, kind of hedonistic, abandoned, bit lost. Mm. Mm. Beautiful play, though. It's interesting. One of the questions that we received um, from a ticket buyer before uh, today was, was about that kind of... With classics, for example, where it's a very familiar... Like King Lear, for example, yeah. where, where you, you program a classic and it's a well-known play um, and it could be anywhere. So, you know, there have been corporate boardroom King Lears and there have been bikey gang King Lears and, and all that kind of thing. So, how, as the artistic director, how do you know what you're buying when you, when you say to a director, yes, yeah, I'd like you well, to be King Lear? I mean, that goes right back to the first question, I think, in, which is that the, the company has a kind of consolidated its voice in the last five years, uh, and a lot of that goes to directors. So our resident directors, Sarah Goods and, and Kip Williams, uh, I'm in a very, I mean, I've been in a conversation with them now as an artistic director for three-odd three years. And um, so it's easy to have the conversation where we get, what would you do with this and, and where's that going to go? So with, say, Midsummer Night's Dream, which is our Shakespeare we're doing next year, um, I talked to Kip about that because that's a play that can be really, to be honest, there's really no need to do it in, in, on some levels, particularly for us to do it, because it's done by everybody and it's incredibly well known and a little bit, a little bit shop-soiled, shall we say. Um, but if you've got a reason to do it, then that's really interesting. And so one of the conversations Kip uh, and I had and, and what, what sort of draws him to the play is not... I mean, it's funny and it's a great setup. and, you know, walking around with a donkey's head, it's going to be funny no matter who does it. Um, but is the, the anxiety that those young lovers feel when, as this, their sexual awakening. So there's a kind of tension inside the play. Once again, like Flea in a Rear, where you need tension and, and, and something dangerous to actually get to genuine comedy. Uh, and the tension that, that Kip's interested in in, this, in, this, in Midsummer Night's Dream is the tension of sexual awakening and um, the kind of horror at the body that's simultaneous with the kind of discovery of the body, if mm. you like. Uh, so that's where he's locating a lot of the um, thrust of the drama, so through the young lovers. No pun Excuse intended. the thrust, yes. Uh, and then through that he's getting out to the fairies. So the fairies aren't benign, lycra-clad, wishy-washy bell ringers. Uh, they, you know, he's really interested in Oberon, that Oberon, in his jealousy, is prepared to, to, to sort of force, trick and make his own lover sleep with a man with a donkey's head. So the kind of extent of that jealousy and the kind of horror mm. of that jealousy. So I think there's a lot of... That's a very interesting reading of the play for me. Mm. Uh, and, you know, knowing his work and knowing that he's capable of, of 
of having ideas and executing them. I felt like that's a great, a great thing to take the audience to a play that they know and let them see it kind of reinvented and reinvestigated and reinvigorated, I think. And, and it's interesting with shows like that because it, that can be sometimes difficult to communicate to an audience ahead of time because um, a, a familiar classic can be either a very comforting and familiar experience or it can be a sort of a confronting and new yes, experience. Yes, terrible experience. Um, <laughs> terrible in the Ivan the Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and, with, and with Shakespeare, you have the added complication of um, preparing school teachers and, and uh, yes. school kids to come. Uh, and in the case of King Lear, you have very long conversations with the director about can they keep their underwear on during the mad scene uh, for the school's performances? Yes. And perhaps can they keep their underwear on during the sexual awakening scene? Who knows? Well, yeah. We'll have that <laughs> That's conversation. That's your problem. <laughs> when we start taking school's bookings, we'll have that conversation with Kip. Yeah. Um, but that, uh, yeah, it's... it's it, uh, they're, they're always some of the hardest ones to land classics because they can go in so Absolutely. many different directions. And, I mean, that's part of the thrill of being an artistic director is, is uh, having those conversations and, and work that you feel like you know and love because, of course, most plays I know and love or most of the plays I know I love um, and, and they've been kind of reinvented for you. It's a kind of great thrill. Yeah. Which, which also kind of turns them into... Uh, there, there are often large debates about do, enough, do, do we do enough new Australian work and what is a new Australian work and, and is a brand-new adaptation. I think you said that the present only had one line of Chekhov in it and the rest of it was, was new material that you wrote. So it's yeah. essentially a new Australian play, but it's, a, it's an update or, or inspired by um, source material. And, and a Shakespeare production... Because there's something about classicism in our, in, of works in our language that kind of makes them neutral territory after a period of time. Yeah. So you can get very Australian readings and, and a lot of kind of genuine connection with Australian culture out of a Shakespeare production. Absolutely. I think, I mean, look, I think one of the important things about, about uh, the theatrical tradition is that there are these, you know, there's these 2,000, 4,000-year-old documents that we can still reinvigorate and reinvestigate. Uh, and they keep us, they keep us, you, you know, sort of tied to our history. And I don't mean in a kind of, I hope I don't mean in a kind of cumbersome way. I mean in a kind of instructive and I hope a kind of illuminating way. But part of that responsibility of being tied to the canon is to, you know, give it a good thorough going over. Because mm. you're not going to, you can change a text for a production. You're not going to change the text for history. And that's, the, that's really the beauty and one of the beauties and the freedoms of theatre is that you can do this now and do Hamlet will be the same yeah. as a text forever. So let's, let's then talk about the new Australian work, yeah. um, like the, the brand new Australian work yep. in next year's season. Um, there are three main kind of vehicles or three main projects that yep. have been developed through the company um, well, next year. Nature Picture, The Hanging and Power Plays. Yeah, we've got Sue Smith who wrote Kryptonite, which you referred to earlier. Kryptonite was a great play which we did in here, which we co-produced with the South Australian Theatre Company actually, which we're co-producing Sue's work again with the South Australian Theatre Company. Uh, Geordie Brookman, the artistic director of that company, has a good sort of creative relationship with Sue. Uh, and her work is very, very adult and um, very mature. There's a sort of maturity to her work, which mm. I just I love. And it's quite hard to get hold of in new Australian writing because I think um, Sue's taken a kind of the kind of opposite course to most writers in that she started working in television. She created Brides of Christ and many great shows. 
but actually turned her mind to theatre later. Mm. And coming at it later, she's brought this incredible maturity uh, to her to her writing. And um, it's, it's a maturity in theme. You know, she's this is a play about a, a late long-term relationship and the questions of, you know, what is what do I give up to keep this relationship alive and, and, and is it worth it, really, to be honest? And that sounds kind of heavy, but, of course, Sue's got a real lightness of touch and deafness and kind of accuracy of char character, which allows the audience kind of into the plays and, and to feel kind of free amongst the themes. But, yeah, her work is very mature, I think, which is fantastic. They can be... Um electrifying those plays too, can't they? The ones that are about relationships yourself. and family. Yeah, they, they, well, they, <laughs> are, they are about yourself. And, yeah. and so you can, be, you can be playing that to 300 people in a theatre and there are 300 different uh, reactions of, yeah. yes, I agree with that, or... That's, Don't do that! Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's so much. They kind of make you realise how much is unspoken in, in, in yeah. life, how many, how many issues we decide to bring up or not bring up, and then in theatre it's all brought up and we, uh, we process that together. Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. Uh, and then The Hanging, which is uh, Angela Betzine, who is a, I'd say, early, mid-career writer. Uh, terrific writer. And um, this is her first play with us, I think. Yep. Or certainly mainstay. She's got a play running at Belvoir at the moment called Mortito. So she's still... I, I think you'd classify her as an emerging writer. Yeah. But um, she's a terrific writer. Yeah, wonderful. The Hanging's a fantastic play. Um, uh, sort of a three-hander. Like a almost, it sort of starts like a police procedural. Really, there's an investigation going on, and there's an, an interrogation, uh, and a, and and a, a chaperone at the interrogation. They're the three, the three kind of players, and then it becomes this sort of um, power play, really, that digs mm. right inside the 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 assumptions and the problems that are made by society around, um, you know, the expectations on, particularly in this instance, on young girls, young women. I don't know how many of you ticked the box for the hanging, but I, I think when I read the script, I thought this is going to be one of the most exciting and and, um, and discussion-provoking plays of the year because she's very cleverly... It very cleverly riffs off a very well-known Australian myth, which I'm not sure we can name for copyright reasons, but let's call it outdoor lunch at a large overhanging geological feature. Um, <laughs> And so she's in. She, she, the the play is not about that, and it's set in the present day. But it has these very, very clever um, uh, thematic linkages to to that myth, um, our relationship to the bush, um, absolutely, um, young women. It's got that kind of exploration of of, of young women and, and group think that the Crucible does. Yep. Um, it's got it's it, for a three hander play. It's got so much in it. Um, it's wonderful. I think it's really exciting. It's going to be directed by Sarah Goods, who's yep. one of our resident directors. And, and you know, like Kip, uh, that conversation... Well, she's had a long conversation with Angela because Angela's been working here as the Patrick White Fellow. So there's a kind of... I think when you know that work is growing between uh, theatre makers, uh, it's, it's very exciting to program a new work out of that. I mean, I, I don't know how many of you were, saw Battle of Waterloo here this year, but Sarah developed that work. Uh, with Kylie, and um, it was a beautiful production, magnificent bit of... It was a first play. This is not Angela's first play. But it, uh, I think that kind of working together director-writer is a great common... You know, great, great thing to nurture. Mm. Mm. And then, curiously, I noticed that we're actually on the slide for Power Plays. There you go. That was, that was the next one I was going to mention. Um, and Power Plays is a different kind of, of theatrical experience because it's not one story all the way through. It's no. actually different plays by different writers... 
Yeah. All on the one bill. Yeah, well, it's one theme. We A couple of years ago, we did a thing called Money Shots, and the theme we gave, I think, five writers again was uh, money. And this one, the theme we've given these writers is power. And the writers range from being completely... Uh, completely emerging newcomers to Hanny Rayson, who must mm. be one of our, you know, great mature playwrights. Um, and what's great about short plays that I, I love is it's a chance for writers... To, uh, plot can be a bit of a burden, to be honest, because you do have to unwind your story as lucidly as possible for your audience over two hours. But if you can just do something for 20 minutes, like it's more than a sketch, but it's a kind of just a grab... It's freer, and um, it, it, we saw that in, in Money Shots, and I'm sure we'll see it with Power Plays, is it's just a chance for writers to just have a little poke at something and, and it'll spin thoughts, and then those thoughts collide, obviously, with the with, because there's a thematic link, it will leave you with a whole sense of the evening, and, it, you know, it's the one cast and it's the one director, so that the evening will have a wholeness, but the, for the writers, it's just a chance to really just flick one idea, really one idea, very clearly. And are you expecting, like Money Shots, that some of them will be kind of more straightforward in terms of writing and some of them will be weirder? Yep. And, Absolutely. It's a know. great... That's another thing for writers, for a chance for writers to, to do a little formal experiment. Mm. Uh, and I'm hoping, and I know that a couple of have, will take that chance because it's a great... It sort of sits inside an evening that, that cushions it, yep. but it allows you as a writer to sit with an audience and see how you're, you know, if you're trying a new way of telling a story, how that works. Um, and I, I imagine, going by the sales reports, because this show is almost sold out its entire run simply to season ticket holders, so I imagine that many of you here are seeing Power Plays. Um, it's a good... I, I think for subscribers it was about $30 a ticket, so it's, a, yeah. it's something that we like, to, we like to try and put on a few shows a year that allow... Um, that sense of exploration and a little bit of the unknown um, as part of the program. Yeah, it's um, important, I think. And, you know, Paige Rattray is directing it and she's a, an emerging director and yep. she did great work, I think, to this year on um, Boys Will Be Boys and it's just great to give her another 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 go at a play. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a, an, an unusual way to program a night in the theatre, but um, Money Shots was terrific and got yeah. great responses at the time. Yeah. So look forward to that one. Yeah. So, from Australian works to international works, um, one of the things that, that you and Kate did when you uh, started the company and that you've continued on is the fact that every year of the kind of 16 or so productions that we put on in Sydney, um, usually one or next year two are works that are imported from overseas. Why do you think that's important for the Sydney Theatre Company to do that? Uh, I think it's very... The, the theatre... You know, as we were talking about with disgrace, good theatre uh, will be in tune with its time. Now, even if it's a, doing a production of a classic like Midsummer Night's Dream, it will find the time and it, and it will resonate with that time. And we are, you know, it is a small glow, it's a small planet, but it's also a huge planet. And um, even though we are sharing kind of similar crises and similar thoughts and similar, hopefully, similar hopes at this time, we're also coming at them from completely different cultural and um, um, formal perspectives. So it's a great chance uh, to, to stay in touch, for me, this is how I see it, and a great chance for our theatre community to see what I think is some, some of the best theatre work. So it's not a festival thing, it's not, it's not great formal invention necessarily, but it's great theatre work for theatre lovers, which is what this company is for.
So you look at something like um, King Charles um, and Rupert Gould is the director of that uh, and the Almeida, he's a terrific, um, about a bit younger than me and kind of past emerging, mid-career, strong career director uh, who runs the Almeida Theatre Company in England, which is one of the great theatre companies uh, in, in England. And this is um, a play by a relatively new writer called Mike Bartlett. Um, it's about his fourth play. And it's a fantastic bit of writing. He's taken the, all of the Shakespeare sort of tropes of monarchy and applied them to Charles and Diana and Wills and Harry and all of those, whoever those people are, and um, has set up their life as a kind of Shakespearean history play. And he's written it in iambic pentameter and he's drawn on, on st the strong, rich imagery that monarchy allows, you know, the... the quest for the crown and mm. the deceit and treachery and I think Diana, I mean I know Diana appears as a ghost so there's all of these classic Shakespearean uh, tropes and tricks and, 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 and mm, insights into how power works and it's applied directly onto something that we know and that disjunction is just totally illuminating. Yeah. I mean it's the great one, one of the things that I really love about novels and plays uh, and in fact probably all different kinds of art is that you get that realisation sometimes that people have always been the same. You kind of think about people in the 1700s and it was all gloomy and hard and there, you know, there was no good they dentistry smell. and all that kind of stuff, no smelly. <laughs> and you think, oh, well, they must have somehow been different people. But then when you read plays or novels written by people in that time, you know, they're funny and they're urgent and they're, and they're relatable. And you realise that, that actually yeah. there is a kind of a thread that we, that we all have that is quite present. And the thing about King Charles III is that, is that it, it, uh, the, the present-day royal family is every bit as Shakespearean as any Shakespeare play. Yeah. And it starts off with um, the Queen dying. So it's a very Shakespearean structure. Like, the yep. Queen dies and so King Charles ascends the throne. But immediately there are kind of rumblings in the court because he... You know, wants to be he's politically difficult. engaged and he's yeah. difficult and so then um, there are opposing factions and, and, you know, Diana comes back as a ghost. I mean, it makes you, it makes you kind of reevaluate Shakespeare and think, oh, that's actually social realism. <laughs> <laughs> and it also makes you realise how kind of nutty yeah. the, the monarchy world is, is in the present day, or the yes. world, yeah. Uh, um, so then that's great and that's in the hands of a great theatre company, you know, from... Yeah. And really, we could, we could take that script and do it, but... What's great is that is such a British... That is such a collision of Britishness, the monarchy and mm. Shakespeare, that it, let's get them to do it. That was like when we bought out Steppenwolf and they did August Osage County. It's th They made that show yeah. and it's their world and so we get to see it at its kind of most uh, illuminated and refined. Yeah. Um, and then the other one next year is 19... Just, just the, Almeida, oh, the Almeida in London is a bit like the... Is it sort of like the Belvoir of London? Yeah, it's a, absolutely. It's a smaller theatre in Islington, so they, they do, like, really fabulous small-scale shows, and occasionally what happens is that they, they do King Charles III, and it's such a sensation that it went to the West End, um, yeah, and it's, it's been Broadway. playing on Broadway as well, so it's turned into this kind of theatrical um, monster, and it's just great that... We, we were able to get it to Australia. Um, you'll only be able to see this production. It's only touring the Sydney Theatre Company. Um, yeah. And so sometimes you also want to see the show that audiences around the world are currently yeah. in love with in, in the theatre couple. So yeah. that's exciting as well. Yeah. And then the other one we've got in is 1927, which is a... They're a really inventive company. That's a... That's... So you've got sort of good theatre bones in... Um, 
There it is. Yes. It's well done. Great job. <laughs> uh, great theatre bones in, in a company like the Almeida and the hands of Rupert Gould and Mike Bartlett. And then in this one, you've got real theatre makers. Uh, there's, there's visual effects. It's a sort of collision between technology and, and, and human interaction. Uh, the story itself is about that sort of collision. It's a sort of reworking of the Golem story, which is a you know great myth, a kind of Frankenstein almost myth. Uh, and um, this company, uh, I, they're a, a currently a resident company at um, the Young Vic, which is one of the most interesting, uh, quite formally in experimental theatre companies in Britain. And they're one of their companies, and they worked with Barry Kosky at the Comisher Opera on. Um, uh, his production of The Magic Flute, which I think has been touring the world lately to great acclaim. It's a couple of years ago they did that show. And it's just, it's just very, very cutting-edge um, theatrical storytelling. Mm. Um, so I think it's important to get that out there. Once again, you get that out in their hands and you get it, you get it from the horse's mouth. This, this um, production we've managed to bring in in a way that we only uh, needed to charge $45 a ticket, I think, for season ticket holders. And some people were saying, you know, read the brochure and said, if it's so good, why is it so cheap? Um, and it's because even though there is a lot of technology in it, it's actually very simple and it has mm. almost a kind of do-it-yourself, cut-out aesthetic to it. Um, and essentially, there's a large screen uh, at the front of the stage that, that most of the things are projected onto. And the actors kind of appear in front and interact with things that are projected onto the screen, or sometimes they might pop out of a hole in the screen, yeah. you know, where there is a window in the in the projected imagery. And the golem itself is an animated character who who the live actors interact with. So it's in some ways it's actually quite a simple production mm. because it's a screen and projection and a company of I think six actors or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, and the other reason we wanted to to make this one a really affordable ticket price is it's probably for you know, kids 12 and up, it'd be yeah. really—it's very visually interesting and unusual. Um, and it's kind of—oh, we've gone away again. It's kind of—it's kind of impressive technically, but at the same time, quite um, straightforward and yeah. sort of handmade. Yeah, almost. And, we don't, and I think that tension sits right inside the story as well. So it's very—it's very sort of formally rich and and illuminating. It's great. So that's Gollum. We hope you're enjoying this special podcast on Sydney Theatre Company's 2016 season. For more information on how to book tickets, visit sydneytheatre.com.au. Now, back to Artistic Director Andrew Upton. Knowing that this was my last season, uh, I, was very, I was very keen to bring back The Secret River, which Kate and I... Um, it was really, literally, the first project we initiated when we got the job. And it took whatever that was, five years, uh, through you know, in the hands of uh, Neil and, and Stephen Page and Andrew Bavell uh, to get to the production, which uh, we were very, very proud of and um, I think sort of stands at the sort of centre, really, of the work that, that we've done in that it's a new Australian work uh, telling uh, a very important kind of story uh, in the hands of, you know, our, I think our greatest living director um, and one of our great, great writers. Uh, two of our great writers, really, Kate Grenville being the, no the originating novelist. Um, so I was very determined to get that back. It's quite a difficult show to get back into place. It's a cast of 18, uh, four of whom are, are kids, um, and Neil himself incredibly busy, as you'd expect, for such a great director. But we got there. 
and then sitting inside that, there's always been a recurring, uh, not, not every year, but as often as I could, I've liked to get a, a, another look at a, an, an Australian play. Really, to be honest, that I kind of remember, but that I haven't seen for years. So we did The Removalist, we did Travelling North. Um, and I remembered, and I love the work of Louis Naura. And um, I was sort of, there was a couple of his plays, actually, early plays that I was looking at. Uh, and Golden Age, in the context of Secret River, or the conversation that Secret River opens up, seemed like the best Louis Naura play to reinvestigate. And it's a magnificent play, really a great play. Uh, difficult play, a sort of bony, gnarly uh, play, but great bit of writing. Um, and it tells, it tells the colonial story in a way without, um, without really getting into sort of um, black and white politics or indigeneity or, or otherwise really. It's really, about, it's really about the effects of one culture on another and, and quite sort of broadly told. It, 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 it's set in Tasmania on, on one level, but also part of it takes place in the, at the end of the Second World War. You know, and, and there's references to the sort of grinding Nazi perspective on culture that kind of tried to sort of swallow everything up in its, in its wake. Uh, and so that kind of conversation about the, the fragility of culture that holds us together and the, and, the, and the kind of power of culture that stops us from seeing anything else is a great, it's a great play for that. Um, so I think that they sit well together. Um, so it's interesting that we miss them because they yes, do sit well together and they are kind of happening simultaneously. So they will be very, very interesting together as, as I think, great Australian works uh, that are about uh, our past but also about how we have found ourselves here today. Uh, another question from an audience member is, after eight years on the job, what will you miss the most? Oh, look, definitely I will miss the company the most. Uh, it's... Um, a really, uh, it's a great thing, it's a great resource that this city has that, the, that a company makes and creates end-to-end -end a, a work of theatre that you can, as you walk up the wharf, you're literally walking past the whole engine, the whole creation of a piece of theatre. And um, that means that there's a lot of different people in this company and from because you know a, a chippy a carpenter is a, a props maker is a very different mindset and approach to theatre to a, to casting hmm. but we all get together and we all work together and we all really are unified by every show we put on because we all work on every show you know apart from the ones we bring in from Almeida and whatnot we do what 12 14 shows a year that we make uh, and it's, it's a very bonded and, and beautiful group of people that are you know, first and foremost in it to make shows and then to get their pay packet because you couldn't put it the other way around. Uh, and that's just a beautiful experience. And then I think the other thing sort of personally is just the chance, as I was saying earlier, to, to have a conversation with, with Sarah Goods or, or Kip particularly, say those two, and, no, and, and have a pool of plays that you know and love and, and be kind of waiting for the surprise of what, will, what they will become in the hands of these people who you, who you trust and are getting to know, you know. So that, that, those two things, I think, are the main, mm. uh, the main things I'll miss. We're very lucky with The Wharf. It's, it's one of the only theatre companies in the world where all the departments, rehearsal studios, workshops, yeah. um, wardrobe, administration, theatres, bar, everything, everything is all 
on the one. It's like a big digestive tract. We've got a loading dock at one side. <laughs> and the, the trucks kind of deposit um, timber and metal work and everything at, at one end. And then an actors. And then uh, everything from street level to this level kind of gets digested into the play and then the drink after the play. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's quite unique. And the other thing about... This company, I think, that, that Andrew and I happened upon at one point when we were wrestling with, with you know, the company and where it should go and what it is and what it should do, is we uh, came across the founding artistic director, Richard Werrett's statement, and we read it and we went, actually, that kind of says it all. And it's, it's great to kind of reconnect and realise that, that, you're, that you're working in a company that has a voice that... that um, is established and that it's your responsibility while you're here to kind of keep it going and pass it on. Yeah, and, and inflict it in the way that, you know, you naturally... Yeah, because every generation needs to yeah. reinvent. But Richard Werrett said that Th Sydney Theatre Company exists to provide first-class theatrical entertainment for the people of Sydney, theatre that is grand, vulgar, intelligent, challenging and fun. And I think... So there's your vulgarity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Richard Werrett said it was OK. <laughs> so we're going to keep doing it. Uh, okay, well, I would like to thank Andrew for being our artistic director for the last eight years. It's been, it's been a pleasure. A fantastic time. Thank you.